0: Howdy! Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech,
1: oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 64, show name, with Brian Romans. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show.
2: Hello. How are you guys?
0: Good. So Usually, we do, um, we do uh, news and notes and highlights before we introduce our guests, but we don't really have any news today. I could tell you about what's happening on Thanksgiving. Would you like to hear about that? Sure. Okay.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm not sure that I'm going to survive Thanksgiving Day. Because <laughs> just today, I committed myself to going on the turkey trot, the Austin turkey trot with Zoltan.
1: Oh, that's going to be brutal! How? Was, what is it? It's
0: five k. It's actually, I think it's just five miles, so yeah. it's not quite ten k.
2: I can I'm, tell you I, later. I can tell you about the time I went on a on a walk with Zoltan.
0: Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> So if you're listening,
1: to 2 mile walk.
0: <laughs> so if you're listening, Zoltan, please, please take it easy on me. <laughs> um, other than that, okay, I do have one bullet point that maybe you want to get into later and not even on this show. But hey, I've been working on graph a lot, information networks. Um, you can check out the IE graphs for breakfast hashtag on Twitter to see what I've been up to.
1: Is that your hashtag? You like own that hashtag? I'm trying to.
0: I'm trying to make it a <laughs> thing. So far, I'm the only one who's used it, so it's not really working out
1: for me. Okay, well, all these all these crazy memes got to start somewhere.
0: Yep, that's right. (laughs) I see Brian's got a beer. Matt, I do.
1: Uh, I'm I'm on wine today. Ah, I don't. I just Uh, actually I'm on multiple medication because I also have herbal tea. Oh, what kind? Um, it's it's not good oh. it's uh it's like some kind of uh it's called throat coat which sounds oh. gross <laughs> but um i think it's licorice based i'm feeling pretty under the weather today yeah just been oh. gradually getting worse and worse so i've just crammed a large number of supplements <laughs> like Vitamin D and vitamin C work for uh, so I, I don't know if I've made that into a thing in my own head. I haven't read any research on the topic. But um And zinc, you're supposed to take zinc too. And I did I did that as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the full and and now the the, the herbs and the and the red wine. The <laughs> and <ice> then <laughs> if I figure if I get an early night as well, which probably isn't gonna happen, let's face it. Maybe tomorrow I'll feel better, not worse.
0: Well, we're glad that you're here, and are you giving us the signal to hurry up already and let's get on with the show?
1: Yeah. No, definitely not. I'm, hey, Brian. Good.
0: What are you doing? Where, where are you?
2: Uh, I'm in Blacksburg, Virginia. That's where I live. That's where, oh. Virginia, that's where Virginia Tech is. Oh, um, I don't know. If you don't know this geography, Blacksburg is in the southwest corner. Not quite the corner. It's southwest part. Of Virginia can you picture Virginia? It's like a triangle picture Virginia with the point pointing to the west we're kind of towards that point Okay, um, I kind, actually- of, kind of remote in a sense. I mean Charlotte North Carolina is the nearest big city, and that's about three hours away hmm. Washington DC is about four and a half hours away
1: And just sort of on the edge of the Appalachian belt we're
2: right or in it. Yeah, right we're, in right right in, yeah we're right in the middle yeah We're right in the valley and Ridge province, it's called. It's beautiful. Mm. So it's small college town. Um, the football stadium fits more people than live in the town. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. <laughs> and it's forest, is it, then, uh, across these hills? Yep, it's all forest.
0: Nice. So how's traffic on um, game day, then?
1: So
2: these six days out of the year, the six home games, Yeah. you have a few choices, basically. You can obviously go to the game, which we've been to one. In the six years I've lived here, it was fun. You uh, can go out of town, like just leave town ahead of time and come back well after, or you just hold down in your house and, and just don't try to do anything. Yeah. So the town grows by, you know, I forget how much, but like way more than, the, than live in the town because there's nothing around here. So people come for games from a three, four hour radius drive. And they, uh,
0: the raid sirens
2: and... and they just hang out, even if they don't have a ticket, they just tailgate. Awesome. Um, and so it's pretty crazy. Um, football's a big deal here, but it's only six days out of the year. Yeah. Cool, yeah, well, so uh, aside from
0: avoiding football games, uh, what, what are you doing in Virginia?
2: <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm a professor, associate professor at uh, Virginia Tech Department of Geosciences. I got here in 2011. it's already six years now Um, yeah and I just got tenure this past spring slash early summer which is pretty awesome I can't lie to have that (laughs) hurdle behind me Um, we can talk more about that if you want and before I came here I worked at Chevron research in San Ramon California sort of now defunct uh, office they moved all those folks to Houston or tried to move all those folks a lot of people sort of either did refuse to leave or you know left Chevron and kind of protest so
1: there's no uh, there's no technical people research people left in California
2: no not geoscience I mean there's still corporate headquarters or business development and some other technical um, folks in engineering you know and some other things Chevron does but in terms of Oil and gas geoscience. There's none left. Uh, there hmm. might be a small, small outfit, um, but last I knew, so that was ha- fun. I worked there yeah. for three and a half years between PhD and this job, and that was a, that was actually a pretty fun job. But I left maybe seven, eight months before that move to Houston happened. Right. My time, yeah, yeah. my
1: timing was really good. Yeah, perfect. And um, before that, you you did your PhD at Stanford. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I was at Stanford 2003 to 2008, and before that, master's at Colorado School of Mines.
1: Oh, right. Huh, I didn't know that.
2: And then before that, going way back now in the 90s, my bachelor's at uh, Buffalo, New York, SUNY Buffalo.
1: What were
0: all these various degrees in?
2: All geology.
0: Geo, geo, geo.
2: Yeah.
0: Right across the board. Cool, man. So what do you work on? What do you... you, um...
2: What's your fascination? So,
1: <laughs> what's, with, what's with the rocks?
2: Yeah, so I'm a sedimentologist, but that's my bread and butter, my training. And so basically anything sediment-related is my fascination. It um, doesn't have to be old sediment, but I do like old sediment. I do <laughs> study modern or near-modern um, Holocene-age right. sediment. Um, mostly deep marine, but not exclusively. But I'd say mostly what happens to sediment right. when, you, when you get into the dark abyss. <laughs> um, it's pretty fascinating because we don't know a lot about it. Um, yeah. And what do I do with that? My students and I, we, we have a big project down in Patagonia looking at outcrops of turbidite, deep marine systems. It's funded by oil industry. So I can talk more about that project and then I have students working on paleoclimate sort of deep time paleoclimate paleoceanography using the sedimentary record and how, so when
1: when when did you realize that um, it was all about the sediment and, and then the the sort of deep marine stuff like was, was it during your bachelor's or and um, or was it your master's like what kind of masters did you do Like, how did that um, sort of awaken that interest yeah,
2: good question. I'd say it wasn't during my bachelor's, it was um, during my master's. Um, so right after my bachelor's, I actually got a job with an oil and gas consultant in Buffalo, New York. You know, not, not the hotbed uh, <laughs> of the oil patch, there's maybe a few people. But he, was, he worked for some small company and he was striking out on his own as a consultant. And he needed sort of help, a grunt help. And so I wasn't really doing geology per se with him just kind of helping him get his little outfit going but he was really enthusiastic and said you know this this is a cool application of geology you should like it <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I just kind of I did because you know he was he was a good mentor and mm-hmm. then when I moved out to Colorado before my masters I got a job essentially making maps and Managing Mm -hmm. geologic data with a small oil and gas company that has since been consumed by some other company So this would have been the very late 90s -hmm. Earliest 2000s company in Denver that was doing coal bed methane Exploration in the Powder River Basin and Again there there were some some people some geologists who were showing me the ropes so to speak Said well if you want to do this like actually do geology, you know you need a masters at least in the US, that's what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I ended up at School of Mines. And I guess to answer your question, Matt, that's when I got involved in a project looking at turbidites in the Permian Basin, oh, okay. uh, outcrops uh, in the Permian Basin, the Delaware Mountains. That, yeah, then that's where kind of hit me what we were looking at and what we could figure out. And so, yeah, I guess that's when it would be when that happened
1: during my master's. Right. Nice. And, um, and then what what was your first sort of like it seems like then you've been kind of connected with the field and you said you're into uh, modern analogs as well as ancient stuff Um, You've you've managed to keep the field work thing alive through your whole career that's that's pretty awesome and Patagonia too which must be amazing
2: yeah so I I mean I love I love going to the field I guess I don't exclusively do field work now I have other projects that don't involve going to the field but I think it would be really difficult to not have some kind of field program or project going on at least I could I don't know if I could do that for too long. Um, I just like getting out there and so yeah the Patagonia project is called Chile slope systems and I did my PhD working on those rocks part of my PhD as did Steve Hubbard, Mm -hmm. who's a professor at University of Calgary, Um, as did Lisa Streit, who's now a professor at Colorado State. And we all overlapped in different ways and did work down there as part of Stanford's project, Um, also industry consortium. Um, And then we all graduated. I went to Chevron. Um, Steve went right to University of Calgary. Can't remember. I think Lisa went right to academia. But anyways, we did things for a few years, and then we all kind of came back together huh. um, and said let's, you know, and Steve had been doing some work down there. He had a little bit of funding from a company or two. But he said, let's grow this and, and do some cool stuff. And so that's how that happened. So I've been going down there now since 2004.
1: Oh, wow. That's amazing.
2: Yeah, I know. Even when, yeah. so when I was at Chevron, I uh, helped run a field school for Chevron employees, a turbidite, a deep water outcrop field school down there. So I think I've been down there every year except one since 2004, which is pretty crazy. I never would have thought that would happen.
1: Yeah, that's impressive. And so, I mean, you must have had, you know, or between those three research groups hundreds of students and I think you still do industry courses don't you because I think I've seen Zoltan going down there too and
2: yeah I mean so when we when I was at Stanford there was several um, students involved Zane Joe, I don't know if you guys know Zane mm-hmm. he, he was part of that group as well um, and then yes yeah, so we we took our sponsors when we were students down there a bunch and then after the PhD yeah I ran a couple Chevron schools but other other companies ran schools down there based on the work that we had that we and others not just us but a, a bunch of people have done down there um, and now we actually so let's see 20 early 2014 we me Steve and, and Lisa we had 13 companies um Sponsoring us and we had 30 people on a trip down there, right. in Fe- February, March, 2014. A year later, I see where this is going, February, March, 2015, we had one person <laughs> attend yeah. the sponsor's trip for obvious, shame. For obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and then last year, I guess it was this year, we had two, two people come. So I think okay. things are back, back on the uptick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if it keeps doubling, why? Who knows where it will end?
2: That's what um, we said this year. We're like, our participation doubled from last year, <laughs> from one participant to two. But, you know, these companies, I'm not. I'm making fun of it, but, you know, when people are getting laid off, it's pretty hard to justify um, sending, you know, people that far away for a field school.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely I mean yeah I mean it, it kind of goes both ways though doesn't it because anyway could get into a whole discussion about <laughs> how to look after the people that are still there but I mean training is one of the first things to go usually unfortunately and my, my, my perception is that it doesn't quite it takes a very long time for it to come back um, you know it's kind of one of the last things to come back it feels like sometimes
2: yeah, um, I mean, and I think our our trips were part training and part, you know, consortium trip. Here's here's our latest stuff, right? Right. Showing, so, you know, not showing people that have potentially been following what we're doing the latest um, rather than a school, right, where it's I need to learn about turbidite facies. Yeah. Um, but we would always have a mix. Right, right. So e- either way, I mean, I think. Of course, I would argue it's super important to keep doing that things even in the downturn. But, you know, it's kind of, it's e- it's an easy thing to cut, right?
1: Yeah, but I mean, given that, you know, and I mean, I, I I shouldn't well, I don't want to dwell on it because I find it a little bit sort of depressing. But I mean, I, I, you know, especially now, find it difficult to get into the field, and even had stopped really going even when I had a job. Um, you know, in geophysics. We'd, we'd go out and see our crews at work and things like that, but not often go out to look at geology. And if we did, it was in a kind of a class-type environment, not a let's do some work kind of environment, which is which is different. But where I was, what I was going to say before I gave it that caveat was, you know, I I don't think I've ever. I mean, you could almost say you don't spend a day in the field. Certainly not. Uh, um, a trip to the field, especially as a team, especially with people like engineers, where, like I say, every day people are having these kind of epiphanies and light bulb moments and like realizations about scale or processes or things that you just cannot, uh, that are totally conceptual and abstract until you've actually sort of seen them. And given how, Everybody has that experience and how obvious it is, well of course you need to go and look at it. You know, it kind of blows me away that actually we do tons and tons and tons of work and spend tons and tons and tons of money without going to the field all the time. Like that's not, it's not the normal thing and yeah. Yeah,
2: that's that's well said. I've had lots of experiences uh, when I was at Chevron and since Mm. taking folks out to the field leading trips, co-leading trips out in the field and just seeing like you said just people's minds being blown you know just never forget uh, some reservoir engineers when i worked at chevron just we were standing on this cliff and he was finally like he's like i'm in the reservoir i'm in it <laughs> yes and he's like it's so big and complicated and and amazing and he was so excited and yeah. it was just he like he just got he could just see it like he just got super excited and um and not everyone maybe gets as excited as that as that, <laughs> that day, but but uh, yeah, it's totally it's totally worth it. So yeah, you're preaching to the choir for sure, Matt. But, yeah. Are there well,
0: non-academic geologic field trips that go on in Virginia in the Appalachians?
2: Non-academic trips? You mean yeah, like, like, like for more? for the general public, or yeah,
0: just like local uh, geo societies or something that get together and go on trips.
2: I wouldn't say necessarily focused on geology, but yeah there's sort of I guess naturalist kind of mm-hmm. kind of trips where maybe geology um, geomorphology the landscape is part of it mm-hmm. um, and then there's the state survey in Virginia they do run some trips that once in a while come back around this this neck of the woods um, but then there's the trips that you know, I run for classes, and other universities in the region run. But I can't think of any um, sort of geologic trips for the public. Not that I know of, anyway. They could exist.
0: Yeah, I mean, I ask because I, I recently moved to Austin, and there's actually rocks here. Uh, I was living in New Orleans a long time. <laughs> yeah. um, so I am trying to kind of get integrated into the hobbyist or weekender field trip thing, and, I, and the first place to start, obviously, is UT, and uh, that's what I'll do. And if they'll allow me to, I'll pay to go on trips with students. I think that would be great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you just get to know some of the professors and just say, hey, can I kind hang of out, hang out with you guys? And I, yeah. think, I don't think you'd have to pay them. <laughs> but,
0: well, I mean, you might. You know, so if you're okay. going out, you know, you got to at least cover your own expenses or whatever.
2: Yeah, 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 maybe that. Or, or they'll, you know, they'll make you like drive a vehicle, you know, cart yeah. the students, cart the students around.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I think it's, uh, it's awesome, and, and you might consider. I mean, I, I, is it possible to like put a post out on Facebook and say, hey, if you're interested in geology, I mean, I guess the work you're doing is a little more specific than the average layperson's interest.
2: Well, yeah, and I, I'd say that my knowledge of the geology where I live. Is actually less than other places right. that I've spent a lot of time. The, the geology here is really fascinating. The problem is that it's covered by forest. Yeah. So um, it's a lot of road cuts, and uh, you know maybe some stream cuts and railroad cuts. Basically, where we've gone through and blasted through places mm-hmm. um, to get rid of the vegetation. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's really interesting, fascinating geology. It extends up to where uh, to where Matt lives.
1: Yes, indeed, yeah. that's right. Um, yeah, very cool. So uh, I, I, I want to make sure that we got time to chat about one of your main research interests and something that I sort of don't know anything about because I think it's kind of emerged. Um, since I really stopped calling myself a sedimentologist and that's the source to sync work that you do and that um, sort of what would you call it uh, theme I guess in uh, soft rocks lately can you tell us about about that and what what source to sync means and what the big research questions there are
2: yeah for sure I mean I guess the phrase sort of the, the phrase source to sync I was trying to figure out one day where, you know, you know, it's tr- sometimes where do these things come from, right? Like these buzzwords or buzz phrases, and um, it was hard to find, as it sometimes is. But you can go back to some papers here and there, in the '90s or even into the '80s. There's, there's uh, one or two, but you know, regardless of the phrase, I guess the whole the whole gist of it is to look at the entire system. So from where sediment is produced through erosion, um, through its transport, and then eventually its deposition. And so, you know, over the last several decades, as we become more specialized, right, so there's geomorphologists study erosional landscapes and processes, and then sedimentologists, basin analysts, stratigraphers, you know studying the, the depositional record of those and so source to sink in a nutshell is trying to integrate those and um, I guess another way to put it is basically about mass balance, right? Hmm. So any given place on the Earth's surface that has eroded has where there's net mass removal or you know it's been taken away um, it has to go somewhere Right, mm-hmm. it doesn't go away, and so one of the one of the the handful of things in source to sink that people spend time trying to figure out how to do, and I participated a bit in this, is doing sediment budgets, but at this big scale and at longer time scales. And so, you know, you could sort of think of it conceptually as all right, here's a depositional basin and we can map it with say seismic reflection and some wells calibrating ages and say there's x you know cubic kilometers of sediment that accumulated over x million years Um, so where did that come from and you know is that erosional landscape um, even left anymore is it completely gone Um, is there anything about what the erosional landscape looks like today that has anything to do with the the depositional basin. So that gets into the time scales.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I guess that's kind of the, the basic gist of it is to, to connect the entire system. You know, geomorphologists would say, all right, we're going to calculate or estimate the sediment flux out of this catchment. But then it's out, right? It mm-hmm. leaves it leaves the catchment to go somewhere that they don't care about um, and then stratigraphers it's not that we have neglected that right we've talked about sediment supply for decades um, but now it's like okay you know this submarine fan which has these dimensions does that scale to a, an erosional feeder drainage basin of a certain kind of scale so another mm. part of it is trying to put some more quantitative I see. Uh, metrics on on these systems
1: and yeah, so it's so kind
2: there,
1: of... there could be constraints there that sort of help uh give you some sort of boundaries for what's for what's possible in terms of time scales and um amounts of sediment yeah. per per unit time that kind of thing exactly so
2: i mean one i think an application potential or value of it say to industry is well, okay, the erosional um, zone that fed a system, if you're looking at Cenozoic-aged um, stratigraphy, especially when you get into maybe the Miocene, it, it likely still exists, right? And maybe it's been modified since then. But if you can uh, say, all right, here's this this catchment system, whatever it is, the the, the Niger, System, it's of this kind of character and of this scale, um, eroding this kind of bedrock geology. Mm-hmm. I'm going to expect uh, um, a delta and submarine fan slope system of this scale um, with this kind of material in it. So, it potentially, you know, can get to some reservoir presence and quality yeah, estimates, yeah. at least at a first order. It'd certainly, you know, not be kind of the detail architecture um, or you could flip it around and say in deep time all we have left is stratigraphy say of a 300 million year old yeah um, landscape that were where the erosional zone is long since gone because it inherently goes away because it's yeah original. yeah that's, that's so, kind of what I was
1: thinking was it's hard to study in a way because it's a void <laughs> and you know because I was I was just sort of thinking um, back to, you know, when when I was doing my research, it was all, uh, all sequence trigraphy all the time and especially um, forced regression and that was the main buzzword driving practically everything everybody talked about at the time in the mid-90s. And um, I guess there was a sort of, a, thinking back, it was a bit of lip service really paid to sediment supply it was a bit like an assumption well there's sediment supply but the periodicity that you're seeing in stratigraphy and the patterns you're seeing i feel like the assumption was that that was basically driven by sea level and um and actually that's probably not a valid assumption at all it's just that we had a hard time saying let's go study the periodicity in the hinterland that doesn't exist anymore (laughs) right
2: yeah i think that's that's a really good way to put it right so the patterns in stratigraphy that are driven by accommodation change right like sea level being one of them or subsidence changes that's kind of more readily available to us in a stratigraphic record mm. because sea level at least with deposits that are near the shoreline can be directly related to water depth whereas sediment flux you know from a bedrock river 200 kilometers or more right. up system that has no preservation how do you yeah how do you study that so I think another big part of source to sink is doing a lot of studies on quaternary you know geologically recent systems right. that are active um, maybe not today but maybe in the late latest pleistocene but In a time scale where we can use like radiocarbon and just have a lot more context to to put things together. So I've done some work with good collaborators and friends where um, And students now where we use, you know, some isotopes like cosmogenic radionuclides, which I'm not an expert in. It's still kind of a bit of black magic to me, but you can calculate erosion rates from these um, isotopes. Mm -hmm and then compare those erosion rates to calculated deposition rates Mm. and then you know look at these imbalances or balances and so there's a lot of work looking at geologically young systems and in the source to sink world.
0: But are these people doing um, explicit numerical models? I mean are they building basin wide deposition models?
2: Yeah so I I would say in terms of the modeling side um, there's a lot of numerical modeling Um, that was done in the 90s into the 2000s for stratigraphic patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it gets to kind of what Matt was saying where they would assume or prescribe certain um, sediment input um, over, you know, a certain time period and certain amount of variability um, to, to sort of test, you know, how the stratigraphic record changed. But I'd say now um, with, you know, more information from natural systems putting some constraints on what's what's a reasonable frequency and magnitude of sediment input in any given system. And so I don't do numerical modeling myself, um, but I do follow the literature as best I can. And and yeah, people are definitely starting to, um, to do that. But I would say it's not quite to the whole system yet where they are modeling erosion, right? And the physics, say, of erosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sediment that that generates, its transport, and then its deposition, it's still segmented, to in a sense. Sure. And, you know, the, the bigger, mo- the, I'd say the models that do encapsulate the entire system are simplified, in a sense, right? They're maybe more. Well, yeah, okay. yeah, they're more Im- rule-based and using some of these empirical and statistical models to constrain them, but they're not obviously modeling, you know, the physics down to the, to the particle scale.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a huge system and it would be almost intractable to, to- Right, it's
2: like a climate model, right? If you want to do the climate of the entire globe or continent, you're not going to be modeling the, the physics of, you know, wind at a local <laughs> local scale. Of course.
0: Um, so, so there's a note in here about uh, using R, which is why I bring up modeling.
2: What are you doing with R? So yeah, I don't do any modeling with R. I'll just say that straight up. I, I use it to plot data, Yeah. essentially. That's basically oh. what I use it for, being somebody who you know, gathers a lot of information and data. I was looking for a better way, more efficient way than Excel essentially to you know manage my data and analyze it and plot it up and update plots when I got new data and things like that. And so R, I basically went to R around 2012, 2013 Mm -hmm. because I saw some folks in the paleo climate, paleoceanography community that I've gotten more involved in the last five years use that program Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of as simple as that it's like oh i knew two or three people said oh i use r to do what you want to do i said okay Mm -hmm. i'll i'll use that too (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) and so i it wasn't a lot of uh careful thought into is this the best platform for me to use blah 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 it was it was somebody i knew said oh here here i have a little script that you want to solve you want to do this thing This script will kind of do that, but you're going to have to figure out how to modify it. Um, And so that's that's how I came to R. And have you
1: started integrating that into your teaching yet, or um, or with your research group?
2: Definitely in the research uh, group. Teaching, um, I did for the first time last fall in a grad course. I haven't yet. I've yet to do it in undergrad. But I I I used R in a grad course in basin analysis. And we used it to do um, nothing very complex, but to make some really simple calculations of, of subsidence and um, make these burial history diagrams. Um, right, cool. and, and the students really liked it a lot because they had heard of R, but they didn't know it. And they liked that it was sort of a gentle entree <laughs> into it. Um, and so that, but I haven't I have yet to, to incorporate into my undergrad teaching I, I'm thinking very carefully how to do that because grad students they can they can roll with it you know mm-hmm. they're committed. Like, right if they're committed <laughs> they're interested they're going to like put the time in if if it you know things aren't working exactly right the undergrads I think a lot of them will be like that but a good portion of them are going to kind of freak out when things don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, right, which understand. is, I guess, you could argue is part of what they should be learning. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I'm just thinking, I'm in the process of potentially overhauling my undergrad course. And so how to incorporate either, whether it's R or you know Python notebooks or whatever is part of that. But I have I've yet to get there yet.
0: Well, I think it's an awesome idea, I mean, uh... Modern workflows benefit, in all cases, from being able to do, as you say, little stuff, just automate your data, your plot, you know, updating of your plots, right? You get new data in, it should be able to populate new data in there for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, so my colleagues in my department and I, f- a few of us have been just chatting over the past few years about whatever the platform would be, and I guess it could probably be Jupiter notebooks, unless something else comes up. But to basically make a departmental kind of series of apps, so to speak, right? Yeah for yeah. different classes, whether it's geophysics or geochemistry or sedimentology, make some simple little apps to calculate whatever, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. really simple or it's more complex, and then build this kind of library over time that then the students not only have access to, but they helped build. And they can modify um, and we could of course share that more broadly, but I think the department I think the the students would really potentially be into that um, mm-hmm. have, well, this com- common, one, right? have This common uniform um, Whatever style to it, but every class or maybe not every class, but we'll try to get almost all the classes have some project or some Problem set where they got to go in there and and do something in the and make the and either make those or refine those apps, but you could just see over like seven, eight, nine years you'd have this crazy awesome library. Yeah, yeah. Of calculators basically, some maybe really sophisticated, and some like I need to you know calculate the mean of a bunch of data. Right, it doesn't have to be complicated.
1: Yeah, totally. And I, and I I would say there's that same a uh, benefit you know that i was talking about earlier with um, with visits to the field where every little exposure i think that people get to these tools um you know they have, th- th- each one of them leads to a kind of realization and a mind expansion that oh right that you know i can do that in that so it's all just about building that kind of arsenal in people's minds of what Ways are there? What tools are there available to solve these problems? And what you know, what what paths are open to you? Because you want them to be able to go off and solve stuff that no one's ever done before. And the more kind of pieces they have in their um, toolbox, the better, right? And because if the only thing they have is Excel, then there's only a sort of finite number of problems that you can solve because it just won't do anything uh, you want, right? So, no, I think it's really important. in, a, in whatever small way, to introduce these things to people regularly, and you know, even if it's a fairly trivial problem, like you say, like f- doing a bit of basic statistics. Um, so yeah, also awesome. Particularly undergraduates. Definitely, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we're seeing, but I, and I know it's not unique to our department, is a disconnect between. I mean, geo students, excuse me, have to take a. Pretty fair amount of math, hmm. you know, calc one, two, diff eq, and then there's some courses in geo that will then apply those, um, but it'll be inconsistently. And and people, and I'm not an expert in this, but but people have noticed there's a disconnect that the students can can do this stuff, but then when it's they turn around and tri- apply it to a geologic a scientific problem, they can't really do it readily. And so I wonder if, you know, having them, you know, turn those equations that they maybe know well yeah. through through probably sort of muscle memory, right, because that's how math is taught, but turn those into, you know, little apps and things they can do things with rather than maybe that'll help make it more cohesive, I don't know. but I mean yeah. there's a lot of people that study that i mean that, study, that do geoscience education, which I don't that actually study this kind of stuff that i I hear little bits and pieces of throughout you know my job that are you know I don't know if you guys know the CERC group s e r c that's out of Carleton college mm-hmm. in okay, Minnesota they have a website for geoscience education and there's a lot of clever people on there talking about um, you know quantitative um You know, making this connection better. Yeah. And it doesn't mean like everyone's a modeler, right? It just means that um it connects what we have them take as prerequisites better to the application, which is geoscience. Yeah. So there's a lot of people thinking about this kind of thing.
1: Once I I, I think it's yeah, I mean, I you know, I think it's really important to see the same problem stated in different ways and sort of expressed in different ways. Because uh, I know I've um, until really recently actually had a real disconnect for me between seeing equations essentially and being able to turn that into uh, essentially implement it in code so that I can actually do something with it. You know that's not a trivial skill actually because some people just seem to think in equations, especially in geophysics. Um, but you know, there's no integral button on my computer there's no uh, sigma uh buttons i mean it's not um, it's easy to be put off that highly symbolic expressions and think oh well you know just i you know basically just think i don't know how to do that um but actually they're all the person who published it probably thinks yeah i've told people how to do that there's the equation well i'll take it one step further too i mean y- you mentioned that
0: there's a disconnect for geoscience students in turning equations into algorithms, but there's also a disconnect between math students turning equations into algorithms. Wow. And that's that's the same problem that Brian references. It's, it's um, the undergraduate students especially need a little more exposure to implementing
1: algorithms rather than just, writing out equations yeah, yeah and I, you, and I, I, I sorry Brian I was just going yeah, to go just follow on with I think the the, the other potential for disconnection um, is at the other on the other side where you there's a a skill not a profound skill but uh, an insight required to turn observation into to sort of turn it into an abstract expression like an equation um, right to see something in the field or in a, in a a flume tank experiment or benchtop experiment, or what have you, and express that as an algorithm or something that you can share with someone else. So, yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of skills there that I was never taught.
0: Flesh yeah. flesh that last one out a little bit more, Matt. You mean uh,
1: b- building a, a data system, or do do you? I don't understand what you mean by turning. Not so it much. Not so much the data. I'm thinking more about expressing processes and relationships. Than, okay. yeah. I mean, the, da- the data is a whole other thing, <laughs> like how to build a database and a spreadsheet yeah. properly and stuff like that. But yeah, even just to sort of be able to say, I think mm-hmm. this happens and that leads to this and that has a relationship to this. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's easy to arm wave about that stuff, but it's more useful to be able to actually express it. Well, that actually this has an exponential relationship or this has a an inverse relationship or whatever. Yeah, I'd say it.
2: somewhat related to that, but getting off the quantitative part is I've I've seen students in my undergrad said course have difficulty, but they get better by the end of the semester, have difficulty synthesizing mm. um, into a into generalizations. Right? So you could we, we could cast that quantitatively as well. But, but uh, an example is being able to basically draw like mm. a cartoon, right? Like, a, right. you know, geologists love these diagrams, these cartoon sort of diagrams that attempt to encapsulate what they're trying to say is the most important set of processes or patterns. And I students at that sort of level, juniors basically, juniors and seniors are much better when it comes to specific um, examples, right? Because this is what it looks like. I can collect those data, and I can put it together, and I can report it to you and present it. But Hmm. when I ask for, all right, now synthesize all that information into a digestible illustration or figure, Hmm. that's really difficult. But maybe that's the same parts of the brain to be able to you know turn a lot of complex information into a you know a, a elegant equation too right yeah
1: no I mean it's modeling isn't it yeah. right I mean it's modeling it's a simplification an abstraction uh, with fewer parameters th- than nature and yeah, yeah when, when we
2: draw those diagrams whether we're doing it consciously or subconsciously we're not including some details right right yeah like we're not drawing in all the things because we're deciding, or maybe subconsciously deciding, that's not important, this mm. thing. This thing that I'm drawing is what's the most important to what I'm trying to communicate anyway.
1: Yeah, but I, I also really like the idea that, um, I mean, I, I, I can remember feeling like that, actually, as a student, because, you know, many, I think, like a lot of geologists, many of the people around me were very good at, or I, my perception was that, you know, they seemed very good at making those doing that mental modeling and drawing those sort of uh, cartoons and um, they're enjoyable to do once you get into it kind of thing but but it's it's scary at first because I or at least for me I felt like it's like anything right as soon as you've got to express it whether it's right about it or draw it suddenly it has to you have to make decisions about things that you don't need to decide when you're just waffling or arm waving. (laughs) It's like oh, actually now I really need to decide does this go up or down or is this black or white and uh, you know that process of manifestation it's intimidating.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm teaching a seismic stratigraphy course right now and it's mostly grad students um, one undergrad this time and they're on a final project now the last six weeks where I just let them loose there's no more, like, lectures and hmm. prescribed assignments. Here's some data. Kind of go for it. And uh, they're really good at the mapping, right? Oh, I'm going to yeah. follow this reflector, and I'm going to map this, the heck out of this thing. And then I say, okay, zoom out. Let's look at the whole 80-kilometer-long 2D line. Like, what, what's, the, what's the evolution, the stratigraphic evolution? And they're just like, oh, oh right like they they got down into the into the weeds um Mm -hmm. in this case seismic data instead of out in the field but you know that whole i feel like i'm always constantly trying to get students to to synthesize and summer and summarize um and they get better at it Um, but it takes practice i guess like anything
1: yeah they uh when (laughs) i spent some time at shell as a student and they um, they've called it helicoptering like they want to the do geologists to be able to helicopter go in really close and then come out and see the big picture and you know be able to do both but yeah it's so hard to do especially in a big 2d survey to kind of be piecing all that together in 3d in your head because um, it's so enjoyable just picking all day uh-huh. <laughs> Feels so productive. Yeah. Oh
0: man.
2: Okay, so uh, before we
0: run out of time, let's touch the (laughs) tenure topic.
2: Okay. How do you? What do you want to know? I guess. (laughs) How does it? How does it feel
1: to be right?
2: Um. How long has it been? First of all. It's great. Feels great. I mean, that's the short version. The whole, oh, so man, um, tenure. I mean, I guess I'll pose a question that we can then talk about is, is and I don't know how it works in um, where you guys came from in your academic careers. Matt, I know you're from the UK, and it's a little different there. Graham? U.S. You, you're from the US, okay. Um, but at least in the US. And in Canada, to some extent, I think, um, a question is, is this the best way to build the best academy, right? right. To Hmm. build academia is this process called tenure, which has a history and all that. um, And interesting, fascinating reasons for why it came about a long time ago. But now, is it the, the way we do it? and there's variability in how it's done from place to place is it the best way and I guess I'm not sure I'm not sure it's the best way like what I guess if we were to make an arguments for pro tenure right six years of of proving yourself before you're allowed to keep your job basically um, what what are the pros for that even if we just play devil's advocate, like somebody yeah, wants, to, somebody wants to argue for this system. What would be the what would the arguments be?
0: I can't make that argument because I, I don't believe in it.
1: <laughs> I mean, how what do do they say it's it's like an extended sort of probation? Is it like it's like the most extended interview you can imagine. Um, I mean, I suppose it's meant to yeah I I don't know it sounds brutal I must admit I don't know enough about how it even works in the UK certainly not anymore because obviously the way that they do assessments and so on and university rankings has really changed since I left and the whole dynamics different really Um, so yeah it it does say like one question I have I guess is once you're tenured is that basically it then you can start showing up in your slippers and wandering around doing whatever you like so I mean I I suppose that's the um, that's the cartoon version that's
2: the cartoon version and (laughs) it's not to say that never happens but I would I, I think those that that get tenure and become that cartoon version sort of dead weight um, is really rare. Um, right. It's right. I, I think there's probably examples out there um, where it happens, but um, Well, I guess that comes back to my question of what whether or not that's You know if, if that's <laughs> if that a, a <laughs> an outcome, right? Um, but I'd say that those who want to do this you know job as research and teaching all combined in this complicated way um, you know if they get tenure or get tenure somewhere you know they're they're pretty devoted people passionate mm. people so they continue continue on right and you know because there's still more stuff to do and you, there's another level of promotion um, it's just not whether or not you get to keep your job right I see um, and you can still, there's also sort of this uh, misconception that you can't lose your job. You could definitely lose your job. I mean, okay. and you don't just have to break the law. You could, you know, just have severe sort of lack of contribution. Okay. So it's not unheard of. Um, but I guess just coming out of this whole system, it's, I don't know, the, one of the things that I find really um, I don't know what the word is. Um, I just don't like it. Is um, that you feel as a junior faculty very restricted in a way to take chances, mm. right? And so you're going to potentially make safe choices, safe in the sense that I'm going to be able to publish that work. I'm going to be able mm-hmm. to get that funding because that's in my wheelhouse um, or at least have a better chance of getting that funding. Getting funding is not easy Um, rather than, you know, exploring a bit and taking a bit of a risk. So I think now if, if those who are junior faculty take a risk and it works, then, you know, the people who evaluate junior faculty, you know, senior faculty, right, they're on the other side of this barrier think it's great. You're like that person's so innovative and clever and creative.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But if you, you take a risk and fail, then you're kind of a bum um, and you don't get much credit for that. I don't think so. I think it could potentially cause junior faculty to not uh, be as creative as they might otherwise be. I think that's a downside, a potential downside mm-hmm. to this kind of system
1: yeah i mean I, so yeah i suppose so the pro argument there or the other side of that coin is you get these highly motivated individuals pushed into this kind of super productive six-year-long cycle of just like doing all the things and never sleeping or never taking their foot off the gas um do, is, do people think oh well that you know i did all my best work in my kind of junior days or is that a thing or okay. i
2: suppose i mean i guess some people would you know the pro argument for this is that yeah you maybe you do push push harder during those years such that when you get tenure and you're you know more established so to speak that you're you know further along than you would have been and you can you know really go after it right
1: right you know as like you, mean, you say you might have focused on the st- the buzzwordy stuff or the the low-hanging fruit so to speak
2: potentially I mean I I I guess you know the advice I got which was good advice and that you know I give now is to think of your research if if you're at a research-oriented place where tenure is not only research but that's kinda the priority is have a portfolio you know so to speak of projects and like any portfolio, some of it, some little part of it could be sort of high risk, high reward, but it's not all that, right? You have a bunch of, of stuff see. that, you know, you like, you're good at, you know, you know you can have students succeed um, at doing. It's right. not um, out of your, you know, your element where you got to learn a lot, right? Because um, we all like to learn new things, but if you spent six years like learning a few new things and then none of them panned out that would probably be a pretty bad choice
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so the diverse I, I mean I like that that sort of diversity feels resilient to me you know certainly as a sort of small business person that's something I we try and like, maintain it because you know we don't want to take all the risks either but you can't take no risk because then there's kind of no opportunity um, so yeah, I like that kind of balance if that's that feels like a good outcome. So I'd you, say the okay. other
2: thing about the tenure though that is bothersome to me is that the, the those evaluating you know, researchers are on various parts of the spectrum of of being clued into what's going on mm. in research sort of developments. And so I mean I have colleagues who um, do work with kind of open data and data reports and things, that it's not a science or nature paper, but it's things you've produced that are out there. And is a senior faculty who's quote traditional, right? Kind of see that the same way, mm-hmm. right? Because they're maybe a little out of the loop. So, but there's other senior faculty who are very enlightened and very much in the loop. So it's just tough, right? Like who's kind of in the room. Okay. Advocating, advocating for people um, doing things that you know some faction might be like. I don't know what that is. Is that that's not what you know gets tenure in this institution? Kind of thing, right?
1: Right. Okay. So there's a committee, <laughs> is there, of a few individuals from the department? Is that how the review works?
2: Yeah, and then and then the entire department votes, and then okay. the depart. Then it goes to the college level, the next level. There's a committee there that reviews everything and then it goes to the university level, which is Mm -hmm. why this takes like 10 months to happen. So there's multiple (laughs) levels, which is good, because Mm -hmm. then there's you know people that are outside the department looking with a careful eye at things, both sort of yay or nay, right? Um and so I think the process is not, it's not that the process is totally broken, but I'm still questioning whether it's it's the best way, so I don't have an answer. Um, I'm still like reflecting on this. It still feels really. Plus, I have colleagues, good, close friends who are you know right behind me. So it's, you know, there's a personal aspect to it that you can't deny, right? Like,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, I'm now on the other side voting, but it's like <laughs> I don't know. It's this very sudden barrier.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> horizon. <laughs>
0: Well, congratulations for getting it. Yeah, and thank you for uh, spending an hour with us. And, uh, yeah, that went fast. Yeah, they really did. We have, we didn't even cover half the show notes, uh, so we're gonna have to have you back for <laughs> version two. And,
2: and Graham, see. I don't even know what, what you do. We didn't even talk about you, but I guess.
0: Oh, you I talk about me all the time on this show. Our listeners don't. Care. <laughs> 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 um, but Matt, um, do we? I, I want to cover books, reading material, real quick. You don't have a note in here. What are you reading right now? He has it with him.
1: (laughs) It's it's actually
0: the best writing on mathematics. (laughs) It's
1: it's pretty good. It's not as uh, scary and gross as it sounds. Um, So I recommend it. It's a it's like a collection of writing from I would say semi technical literature. From the last year, and I, I'm really enjoying it. You know, t- chapters are things like the largest known prime number about, you know, Mersenne primes, and uh, something about Richard Guy, uh, famous mathematician at the University of Calgary, uh, collaborator with Paul Erdős, and yeah, there's all sorts in here on high-dimensional geometry and paradoxes, which I always like. Yeah, it's really good. Been enjoying it. Cool. Good way to Brian. get to sleep. <laughs> That's Brian, what are you reading?
2: Um, I guess the one book I'm reading at the most right now, it's called Earth and Human Hands. Just kind of a God. um, I don't know, potentially cheesy title, but <laughs> it's a re- it's a, I know, it's a really good book. It's it's got a lot of it weaves together. It's by this guy David Grinspoon and uh, he's a planetary scientist but it weaves together Anthropocene concepts um, SETI, um, climate change you know terraforming like all this kind of big stuff and he does it in a really entertaining entertaining way. He uh, he was a grad student in the 70's and uh, Carl Sagan was sort of in he was able to be in Carl Sagan's sort of sphere Wow. Of, right. of people, and so he's got anecdotes about about that, and it's, it's, it's good. I'm, I'm almost done, probably three-quarters of the way done.
0: It sounds fascinating. That might be my next one. Actually, Matt sent me a book that I haven't started yet.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: wow. Absolutely slammed, and I'm ashamed to say <laughs> I'm still on the same book, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm about to give up. I'm almost at the end, and it's boring the hell out of me. So. <laughs> I won't mention its name again on here, but if you go back one or two episodes, <laughs> Four. you're all about it. <laughs> and with that, we're off. Dr. Brian Romans, thank you for joining us on the
2: show today.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thank-
2: yeah. Glad to be here. Thanks.
0: See you listeners in two weeks with a data science guest.
2: Mm. Oh yeah.
0: Bye.